Larry Clayman is going to give us some of his uh, ideas on foreign policy. And uh, the first question I have is, what areas of the world and what areas of foreign policy is the highest priority for you to that first grabs your interest and where you think American policy should be focused? Let me first give a little bit of my background because most of people think of me as the founder of Judicial Watch and then Freedom Watch. But I actually began my career uh, as an international lawyer, having studied in France and Aix-en-Provence while I was at Duke University. I then spent time in Brussels, Belgium, uh, working as an intern, a stagiaire, as you say in French, uh, for the European community at the time. Before that, I had spent a summer in both Brussels, uh, going to the Institute of European Studies and also the Hague Academy of International Law. I then, when I started my law practice, went to Miami because I thought that was going to be an international city, which obviously it became. But I got a little tired of Miami at the time. Uh, I wanted to go up into the big leagues, and I took a job with the Department of Justice. I could have been in the international antitrust section. I chose a different section. I thought it would give me more background in terms of how Washington works. But when I left, I went with a small boutique international trade law firm that practiced free trade. In other words, allowing product to come into the country. In those days, we didn't have these terrible trade deals like NAFTA, but free trade was thought to be a very pure, good concept to increase uh, economic activity in the United States. It still is, but it needs to be tempered. Uh, and throughout my entire career, uh, I have been active internationally. I, my first marriage was to an Italian from Rome, Italy. In addition to the French that I already spoke, I learned Italian. I learned some Spanish in Miami, Florida. And I have traveled a great deal around the world. Uh, one time, I even represented the governments of Portugal, of Thailand, uh, of various other countries throughout the world. Uh, so it's not somebody that's sitting here that doesn't know anything about international affairs. So shoot. Um, do you consider Iran the greatest existential threat to America right now, and what should be done about them? I do. Uh, Iran uh, is a country that at one time, uh, before it was taken over by Ayatollah Khomeini, was a friend of the United States. It was run by the Shah of Iran, and it was actually Jimmy Carter who undermined him. It was one of the things that turned me against Carter. It actually worked for him in law school. It turned me into more of a conservative uh, than I otherwise would have been. And ever since then, Iran has become very, very powerful. And it was in 2009 that there was an opportunity to remo remove that regime, which is a brutal barbarian regime a vehemently anti-Christian, vehemently anti-Semitic, vehemently anti-Western. We all remember the Iranian hostage crisis that allowed uh, President Reagan to get elected. But we had a chance in 2009, and we missed that opportunity. And ever since then, Iran has grown into a superpower at this point. Uh, this Iran treaty that uh, we signed, meaning Barack Hussein Obama, with the complicity of the Republican establishment, has given Iran, I believe, atomic weapons. I believe they already have them. Uh, it did not curtail the development of medium-range and long-range ballistic missiles to deliver atomic weapons. It has threatened Israel uh, with extinction. It foments terrorism throughout the Middle East and the world. And I even have some lawsuits at Freedom Watch against Iran for killing 
our brave heroes uh, in Afghanistan and other places. They paid a bounty of $1,000 for each dead American GI. Uh, it is an evil, evil, evil regime, and it's the biggest threat to the United States. And what should be done about them? Do you think military action is the only way to deal with them, or do you think removal of the regime through something more surgical, or do you think economic strangulation and sanction is the way to go? Or are there other remedies for a regime that evil? Well, let me back up a little bit. There was a time, like I said, in 2009 where there was a student uprising and the Green Movement working with the students that came very close to overthrowing the Ayatollahs, the Mullahs in Iran. At the time, Barack Hussein Obama was the President of the United States, someone who I believe, even though he's only half Muslim in his heart, he's entirely Muslim, and he sympathizes with them. There's brothers over there. And he looked the other way. And we had an opportunity, even just doing it peacefully with Voice of America, that's our propaganda radio and TV network, the Persian News Network, to influence those people, to encourage them to rise up, to get rid of the mullahs, the succeeding Ayatollah Khomeini. And we didn't do that. And even the Republicans, John McCain was very powerful then as a U.S. Senator. He had lost the election to Obama, but he had a lot of clout and a lot of sway. He and other Republicans did nothing to uh, further that regime change that could have occurred in 2009. And what they did was, Voice of America, and I had a number of clients there who wanted to speak out for liberty, and wanted to speak out for freedom. But Obama prevented them from doing that. And in fact, the head of the Persian News Network was someone who, whose father was a, an advisor, a top mullah to Ayatollah Khomeini, who was then in power. And Voice of America is both Democrat and Republican. They have a board of directors, half are Democrats, half are Republicans. One of them was Dana Perino, who now is on Fox News. And the Republicans did nothing to force Obama's hand. Reagan used the Voice of America to help bring down the evil empire in the Soviet Union. Uh, and we basically rolled over and supported that regime. And now we've got a major cancerous problem that has metastasized in the Middle East. Can I ask you a question that's always been on my mind? It's understandable for Republicans in the era of 2009 to do nothing because they didn't hold either chamber of Congress. But once the 2010 election happened, and be, and you can also in this answer address some of the issues with the Republican establishment and why they or would or would not want to see regime change happen. But... Remember, I'm a layman, so I'm just asking the questions and for your expertise, both legal and, and um, uh, uh, practical. Uh, if Congress has the power to declare war, why wouldn't a Republican Congress declare war on Iran and force Obama as the commander-in-chief to deal with the fact that the people's chambers just declared war on this country to prevent Obama from doing these deals, these ransoms, these, these payoffs, and these treaties. That was one way to possibly get the ball rolling after the Republicans, led by John McCain, failed to do anything in and around 2009. Remember that very attractive woman, NATO, was killed in that uprising. That was a spark which brought, almost brought the regime down. That would have made it easy. Because, you know, the Iranians, 
whether they're Muslim or Jewish, and of course many of the Iranian uh, Jews have emigrated to this country. A lot of them live in Beverly Hills and in California and Washington, D.C., as well as Muslims. They wanted that regime change. Um, I also fault them, by the way, for most of them, for not doing anything, just sitting there and watching what was happening. I have some very good Iranian friends who are activists. Yeah, I've true. represented them. But they weren't active either. I mean, they were basically just cashing in the, the change here in the United States while their country was being taken over by these mullahs big time. So a lot of people were responsible for this. But getting back to the Republicans, uh, they did nothing. And, you know, typical of John McCain, uh, who I met back uh, in the 1990s. I write about it in my book, Horrors, Why and How I Came to Fight the Establishment, that you can order at Amazon or Barnes & Noble online or go to our website at freedomwatchusa.org. McCain just shoots his mouth off. He doesn't do anything. He wants to be a big shot. He wants to take on uh, Republicans that he's jealous of because he never became president of the United States. Frankly, at this point in his career, he's, he appears to me to be senile. And, uh, and he was the leader of this movement, um, you know, in, in the Republicans to try to get rid of these mullahs, but he did nothing. And then, of course, along comes Obama, Obama sympathizes with them. Uh, there's some evidence that Obama is a Shiite Muslim, that um, and Iran is run by Shiites. And it's clear Obama's uh, most valuable asset in the White House, his so-called brain, Valerie Jarrett, has some very, uh, shall we say, convoluted connections to the country. Right. And, of course, the Secretary of State at the time was Hillary Clinton, and her top aide, uh, also her girlfriend, literally, Uma Abedin uh, is a radical Palestinian whose mother has ties and family has ties to the Muslim Brotherhood, the granddaddy of all terrorist groups, as well as Hamas and Hezbollah, very anti-Israel. So all of these factors together, number one, the lack of Republican resolve against Obama, who sympathized with that regime, and his advisors, and Hillary Clinton, who has also, in my view, under the table, sympathize with that regime. I'm sure that she's gotten money from that regime, as she has from nearly everywhere else. Uh, coupled with a Iranian population in the United States, save, save for a few hundred people, that basically, in some respects, thinks that's still their motherland and, and didn't scream, you know. Jewish people, for instance, of which I'm one, uh, we're loud, okay? We not the liberal Jewish community, but the conservative, moderate Jewish community, has always played a very active role in foreign affairs through APAC and other organizations. The Iranians did not, and they let it happen. And then, of course, uh, Obama negotiating this treaty, which is a total abortion, uh, Hillary Clinton coming up with this concept of economic sanctions. Economic sanctions only has, have worked once in world history, in modern world history, with South Africa, because the entire world did it. But these economic sanctions really did not slow Iran's nuclear program. The only reason they ultimately agreed, in principle, to delay building an atomic bomb for 10 years, which is where we are right now, is to have over $100 billion in frozen assets released. Um, shall we say that that culture is not the most honest culture in the world? I mean, no culture is perfectly honest. But, uh, you know, in Islam, under Islam, uh, it's actually in the Quran that lying is perfectly acceptable to further the caliphate, to further 
the will of Allah, which is to populate the world with Muslims. And to commit acts in further jihad, which is the killing of everyone right. who isn't. So the, the paper that's written on isn't worth anything. And then if you add it all up, and this is where, and I know I'm a little bit all over the map here, but the Republicans caved in on that treaty because it is a treaty, okay, but it's not the way it was implemented. It should have been a treaty if there was any treaty at all with better terms. Yeah, but they reversed the way the voting works. Re Rather than ratifying the treaty, they took some sort of sham monkey vote to... took two-thirds to, to, to approve yes. it rather than two-thirds two -thirds to disapprove it rather than two-thirds to approve it. They, right. they flipped it. Okay, that was Senator Corker's uh, uh, so-called brilliant but incredibly stupid idea which the Republicans rallied around McCain, Senator Marco Rubio in Florida. You know, one of the reasons that I've never liked Rubio, that's my home state, Florida, is that, number one, the guy's never done anything. Number two, he rarely showed up to vote as senator. And although he was raising money that he was going to block the Iran Treaty, uh, he never showed up to vote on it. You know, these people just rolled over. And, and that's why, given the rise of Donald Trump and him saying that's the worst agreement ever negotiated in American history in a foreign affairs sense. NAFTA, he says, economically. I, I may differ with him a little bit on that, but it was a terrible deal nevertheless. The, the reality here is, is that Trump's rise to power is because he's taken on this establishment, this Republican establishment and Obama, and they both were roundly defeated in the last election. And what we have now, you know, in terms of this threat to the United States, of course, we have China, we have Russia, we have North Korea, but Iran is the biggest threat. These, these people are not Boy Scouts. They're not unintelligent people. They're very well educated. Persians are not Arabs, okay? It's a different culture. The Arabic culture has always been somewhat backward, probably will be backward for thousands of years and into the future, in my opinion, but the Persians are not. And uh, that's the background of their culture. And uh, they now have a military machine which uh, perhaps is only surpassed by the United States, Great Britain, France, and Russia. But they also have something that surpasses us which is unquantifiable, which is clearly the will to dominate. It doesn't matter if you have America's military might, but if you have a people willing to elect Barack Obama and other Democrats over and over again, it indicates to the rest of the world that you have a population that's willing to be subjugated. And I find the, um, and we'll wrap up in a, in a moment or two, I just want to run this point by you and see if you concur and what your take on it is. Uh, I, I found the, the most refreshing and wonderful thing about the election of Donald Trump is not Donald Trump himself, and it has nothing to do with the people he's appointing or what, whether he may hew towards um, some form of constitutional conservatism or Republican establishmentism. It's not that at all. To me, it's in a way the inverse. It's an indication to everyone in the world that the American people are no longer going to tolerate being dominated and that they're going to show the will to dominate themselves. I would agree with you. And Iran is a perfect uh, case in point, okay, is that we need to rise up. I was very heartened that the second day of uh, President-elect Trump's existence as president-elect, he repudiated the Iran agreement. He said it's going to have to be renegotiated. Now he must stick to that. And the other tragedy here is, is that under Obama and Hillary Clinton, they did everything they could to harm Israel. They tried to t 
to tie Israel's hands behind its back. Yeah, revealing secret plans about Azerbaijan or flying over Saudi territory or scuttling any plans Israel may have had to be able to attack Iran. And we have a lawsuit on that. And the few documents that we got from a Clinton-appointed judge show that Hillary Clinton was the one who likely leaked information on Israeli war plans to try to keep them from attacking Iran. And even if the uh, regime change in 2009 had failed, the Israelis at that point could have taken out that regime. It's now too late. They're too powerful. And that's a real tragedy. And I, and I also blame Israel, frankly, as much as I love it. I'm a Zionist. Uh, Netanyahu talks a good game. Um, he, he's very eloquent. But people in Israel, even the conservative right, look at him, frankly, as uh, a wuss, you know, someone who, who really talks but doesn't act. And he flinched. He went along with Obama. And now, frankly, uh, Israel's in the deep, deep, deep trouble. Well, that's a fantastic set of conversations, and I hope we get to continue it tomorrow with you. I do. Thank you. We'll take it one step at a time. And uh, that is my passion, um, international matters, in addition to being a self-proclaimed crime fighter. <laughs> Not uh, crime fighter, superhero. <laughs> superhero at Judicial Watch and Freedom Watch. But everything today is interrelated, and you hit a really good subject because I do believe that the future of the United States and Israel are tied very closely together. That is the cradle of our Judeo-Christian civilization. Whether you're Christian and believe in Jesus, or whether you're Jewish and believe in Moses, and if you're Larry Klayman, you believe in both, uh, you have to look at Israel as the place where it all began, and we don't want it to be the place where it ends. take on North Korea uh, historically how did we get to this place and what do we have to do to get out of it well the problem of North Korea goes beyond Barack Hussein Obama we can't even blame him completely for that oh it, darn it goes <laughs> it goes all the way back to the Clinton years Bill Clinton the first presidency it goes back to George W Bush it then seeps into Barack Hussein Obama because we in the United States, we tend to think other people think like we do. They think we tend to think other people are rational, but the North Koreans are not, and they're they're good liars, just like the Iranians. In this case, you're talking mostly about the government, or are you talking about the the broader culture as well? I'm talking about the government, and uh, I have respect for the Korean people. And, and really quickly, when you talk about going back to Clinton, mid '90s, we're talking in this particular case about the nuclear. Uh, 
reactor and the deal that's correct negotiated in 1994 and what is creating a a serious um shall we say existential threat to us today versus just starving people being abused by a government that is a tyranny yeah we we in effect appeased the leadership of north korea which is along with iran the most repressive regime in the world bar none Uh, their people live in poverty they live in slavery in effect and we made deals with them. You know, we'll give you economic assistance if you stop producing nuclear-grade uranium. Same thing we're doing with the Iranians right now in Celeson. And every step of the way, they defied the agreements. And when they defied the agreements, neither Clinton nor Bush nor Obama stepped in to seek to enforce them when we could have taken all of that out. So it's very, it's, it's ironic and, in fact, it's tragic that North Korea, who not coincidentally is an ally of Iran, that they're both in a similar position right now. North Korea has, by some estimates, at least 10 atomic bombs. It has missiles that can deliver them at least short range. Now they're working on medium range and long range. They're sharing their missile technology with the Iranians. They're working together. Uh, In fact, they work together on developing a nuclear weapon. They are, in effect, the same country. They're flip sides of the same coin, although one is Shiite Muslim and the other is just a bunch of communist lunatics but they have a lot in common. The enemy of my enemy is my friend, and of course the great Satan in the United States is their, their enemy. And, and, that, the, and the lunatic part is absolutely uh, a... Absolutely. And, you know, we've got a major problem here. So when Trump says that he wants to lighten up on, on Japan and let them arm themselves finally after all these years, frankly, I'm not in disagreement with that. You know, it's been many years since World War II. The Japanese are different people since World War II. Uh, they have turned over, you know, generations. And frankly, I would let uh, Japan go nuclear at this point as a buffer and let them start uh, paying the freight, whether it's Japan or Europe, uh, to defend themselves. Uh, because we've got still got 30,000 troops on the demilitarized zone of the Korean Peninsula. and. We've had 60,000 during President Carter. He cut it back to 30. In fact, I knew the general in charge of that theater, General John Singlob, and when he criticized Carter for cutting back, he was fired. Uh, But why do we have to have that kind of an investment in a country which is so rich, meaning South Korea, and so economically powerful that it can defend itself? And why do we have to keep paying the freight for Japan? Let Japan defend itself, with American assistance, of course. We need bases there and everything. But this is why when President Obama goes out with his ultra-leftist surrogates, uh, the cheap hacks at CNN and MSNBC and the George Soros's who finance all this stuff and trying to create turmoil now before President-elect Trump takes office, this is why we, the American people, need to speak out, because American interests have to come first, but American interests do not mean paying freight for the rest of the world to defend these countries. It may be too late to take out North Korea, their nuclear facilities, like it's too late to take out Iran, but we need a new world order here uh, to um, all pitch in. The United States should not abrogate uh, being a major player in coalitions, but it's time that we use the money for our own defense forces, because frankly, our nuclear arsenal is now decrepit. We don't even know if it could launch on warning anymore. A lot of it's leaking in the silos, those nuclear missiles that we have in the Midwest, in North Dakota and elsewhere. Uh, Our military has been depleted. 
Uh, we don't have parts for our planes. And all the while, you've got North Korea, you've got Iran, you've got their surrogates in China and Russia building up a tremendous military power. And we've got a real problem right now. Yeah, I, I, I want to sort of stop you there and explore that point, because I think that's fascinating and not spoken to about enough. Um, ever since the 90s with the peace dividend, there's been an attitude in the in the American government from both parties' administrations that we need a smaller, lighter, more capable and mobile kind of, uh, you know, military for things like uh, a Saddam Hussein in, in Iraq or a uh, Taliban in Afghanistan. And we've been neglecting our nuclear arsenal, ironically, at the very time when an actual nuclear threat akin to the old nuclear threat of the Soviet Union is not only on the horizon but here. Not only that, but as you spoke about how our nuclear arsenal is decrepit, not only is it decrepit in, in the uh, investment in parts and, and equipment and material, but also it's well known that Obama would send the most apathetic and disinterested uh, uh, men to participate and be the guys working in the silos. When they used to be the absolute elite wingmen and airmen in the, in the Air Force, now they're the, uh, you know, the, the meth addicts and the, uh, you know, the, the dysfunctional people. And he, he made a point of that. Do you, do you agree with that assessment? And yeah, your, generally speaking. You know, I mean, these people are manning nuclear silos and stuff. Some of them are not mentally stable and else, elsewise. We're going to do a seminar at Freedom Watch sometime early next year about our military. It's not just the nuclear arsenal. It's not just the strategic relationships with these adversary countries. It's not just Obama not having backed up Israel. Thank God we have President-elect Trump, uh, who will be close with Israel. If uh, Rudy Giuliani, former mayor of New York, former uh, deputy attorney general, former U.S. attorney, becomes secretary of state, he's very pro-Israel, very pro-Jewish, uh, and we'll have a good friend. Israel will have a good friend. But uh, in terms of our military, uh, if we're going to fight any new wars, we need to change the rules of engagement. Under Obama, our troops couldn't fire on Muslims unless they fired on us first. So are you saying, in effect, that if we go to war using our military, we should have the ultimate strategy of victory being the first directive? And we should not worry about collateral casualties. If that's the way the, the enemy does it, so be it. We didn't worry about it in World War II. I mean, we had to win at all costs. Right now, we have a war, and let's be blunt about it, between Judeo-Christian culture and the Islamic culture. Anyone who is Islamic and actually practices that faith believes that Christians and Jews and other religions should be eliminated from the face of the earth. That's in the Quran. It's not in dispute. Yeah, there are good Muslims who don't believe that stuff, but they're no longer Muslim. That's a fundamental tenet of Islam. And to be able to win that war, you have to wipe it out. And you got to do it ASAP. And you can't worry about it. I read an article today in, in uh, CNN. People used to call it the Clinton News Network. I call it the Communist News Network. Okay? And it, these Muslim women in this country are, are terrified of wearing the hijab or, or headdresses. The hijab. Or, or, hijab, whatever, yeah. whatever you want to call it. And you know what? That's too bad. Okay? Because for all this time, American Muslims have largely been silent. Some of them have actually uh, supported Islamic terrorism. I had a client who was married to a prominent doctor in Memphis, uh, and she had two kids, 
She was of French origin, became an American citizen. And when 9-11 happened, he was sitting there in the living room cheering the destruction of the World Trade Center. And then he told his kids, who the wife who was Catholic, but she had agreed to let them be raised Muslim, but when she saw what was going on, she said, no, I want them raised as Catholic. He threatened to kill the wife and the kids if that ever happened, and they barred all Jewish kids from coming to the house in Memphis in a relatively mixed area. Because this is what we've been dealing with. The Council for American Islamic Relations is just a terrorist front organization. This is the major organization. So you know what? I'm not sympathetic. Okay? You want to play the game? Then take the consequences. If you feel self-conscious about wearing your headdress, you created that situation. American Muslims need to speak out. They need to support the interests of this country. They should be protected. They should be respected if they're citizens, if they're permanent residents. But it's time that we stop babying everybody uh, because we're in a war with Islam. That's a reality. And so the world is collapsing. The world uh, under Obama has gone to its lowest depths. He's over in Greece right now disparaging Trump and his so-called nationalism when this very evil president who views himself more as a Muslim than as his professed Christianity, has done everything he can to take this country to its knees, has stoked a race war, has stoked division between men and women, uh, and he's cheaply over there in Greece just yesterday giving speeches, uh, undercutting President-elect Trump after he said he would actually be supportive. He is a very destructive person between him and the Clintons who are far from gone. They both need to be legally dealt with in courts of law, and you have my pledge as the head of Freedom Watch, former federal prosecutor, that uh, we will pursue this to the end. We will not give up. Don't look for the Republican Congress to do it. They just want to get on Fox News. And I love Fox News, but they're not deserving of that. Yeah, and uh, how can people support Freedom Watch? They can go to our website at www.freedomwatchusa.org www.freedomwatchusa.org We need your financial and other support and prayers because we are in effect the People's Justice Department. No one else can or will do it. Threats from Cuba have existed for a very long time. We go back before the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, when President John F. Kennedy made a half-hearted effort to remove Castro from power at the Bay of Pigs. Many people speculated the CIA was so angry they may have been involved in his assassination, some aspects of it. I don't know. Nobody has ever found out the reasons why that tragedy occurred, and I happen to have liked President John F. Kennedy. I was a young boy at the time. but. He made a deal, and it's been widely reported under the table, with uh, Nikita Khrushchev, then the premier of the Soviet Union, that we would never seek to remove Castro. And he's remained in power all these years. Now, I'm a citizen of Florida. I lived in Miami and live in 
Boca Raton now, and I've lived in Florida for a number of years. I know the Cuban community very well. I brought lawsuits against Castro, one on behalf of Jose Basulto, a brothers to the rescue, who he and his brothers used to fly over the Straits picking up immigrants that were fleeing the communist island, the hellhole of Castro. Uh, they were shot down. Uh, we have a $1.8 million judgment. And the Castros haven't changed. I mean, they're just a miniature version of Nazi Germany. Uh, they've killed tens of thousands of people. Uh, they once blew up a boat in Havana Harbor killing children. Uh, that was the least of it. There was the Elian Gonzalez saga when Elian escaped and, and survived. I represented the Gonzalez family at the time, in part, the end. So I know the community very, very well. And under President Obama, who is a socialist, frankly, if not a closet communist, he tried to open up relations uh, with Castro, caved in, didn't get anything in exchange to speak of, uh, opened up trade, opened up uh, visitation. And I was very heartened to see that President-elect Trump, on the second day after he won the election, said, no, slow down. We're not going further until there's more democracy in Cuba. That was the right thing to do. One of the other things that needs to be done, and I'm very disappointed, as Senator Marco Rubio, who is of Cuban descent, who's done absolutely nothing to help his own people over the years, is that he needs to do something, as my senator from Florida, and he needs to step in and to say the judgments against Cuba and the Castro, such as Jose Basulta obtained, need to be satisfied before you open up any further relations. And there need to be a lot of changes in Cuba. We hold the cards. They don't. They need us more than we need them. It's still a nation in tremendous poverty. And, of course, Cuba uh, was the instigator for Hugo Chavez in Venezuela. They were his uh, surrogate, in effect. I mean, Chavez had the money from the oil in Venezuela, but uh, Castro collaborated with Chavez to spread a revolution throughout South and Latin America. Castro also worked, you know, before that with Che Guevara and then with Daniel Ortega, who's reassumed power in Nicaragua, and we know the story of that. But the bottom line is this, is that we're on the verge of snuffing out communism in our hemisphere, and I would urge President Trump to take a hard line with Cuba and to press to make sure that things open up. You know, one of the great ironies here is that all, the intelligentsia of Cuba fled. Most of it's in Miami or in Florida. And all that's left behind are really poor um, people of African descent, essentially. Castro is not a civil rights leader. He actually deeply dislikes black people, and he's kept them down. So if the Democrat left in this country wanted to do something positive for their people, other than fomenting violence in the streets right now, with Black Lives Matter and Farrakhan, Nation of Islam, and everything else, they could start working on Cuba, because there are a lot of black people there that need freedom, and they should be working with President Trump in that regard. Let me uh, ask you a question. You talked about opening up relations. Uh, our, our friends on the left, who we consistently and always disagree with, always tell us to uh, unclench the fists and open up relations. And, and remember, you're not saying this to me, per, per se, as an individual for this. I'm asking sort of the broader question for people in our audience who may not understand this. Why would you not want to have relations with a country like Cuba when Democrats constantly say, well, if you want to change them, you have to have a relationship with them? Well, so. there's no reason to have relations with Cuba, frankly. What do they do for us? You know, they make sugar cane. We, after the embargo was put in place, we now have a sugar cane industry. There's nothing they can do. They make cigars. Well, we make pretty good cigars in Miami and Tampa. But the Cubans, frankly, don't do anything 
you know, economically, that's that helpful to us. They're not a major power. The best thing they have is Guantanamo, and we have a lease on that. At least we use that to house terrorists all these years. But for humanitarian reasons, for reasons that we believe in democracy, that we believe in freedom, we should try to help the Cuban people. And there are a lot of Cuban Americans in Miami and elsewhere who have relatives in Cuba. And to try to free them and to have them live a better life certainly would be better. And I might say this, is that the Cuban culture is a great culture. I love the Cuban culture. They have great music, great food. People are good looking. Uh, I'm joking a little bit, but, you know, they're just they're hardworking people. They call them the Jews of the Caribbean, is that they've worked hard. And to not do something to try to help them uh, at this stage of our existence, I think, would be wrong. But you don't help them by rolling over to the Castros and, and to communist regime and in Cuba, so, as Obama has done yeah. happily. And, and this gets into some of what we've talked about with Iran and North Korea and the other segments here, which is people don't understand there's a distinction and a differentiation between a people and their government. And people can be of a wonderful group of people with a wonderful culture and have an absolutely lousy government. And opening up relations with the government does not mean you're opening up relations with the people and having relationships with that government, if you open it up, will most likely cause that government to stay in power longer and be rewarded for the evil it's done to the people. That's right. And I'll give you a little uh, example is that I represented um, several victims of Castro's regime during my years at Judicial Watch. Uh, we went over to Brussels and filed a criminal complaint against Castro and others in Cuba, it's like his brother Raul. And unfortunately, that case didn't go forward because Belgium uh, ended its law which allowed for prosecution criminally of crimes against humanity. It was one of the few countries that allowed for that. Spain is another one. But uh, in the course of doing that, I got to know these victims. And some of them were imprisoned for 17, 20 years. They were simply journalists who were critical of the Castro regime. Their wives were brought into prison and raped in front of them by Castro's prison guards. Uh, they were beaten. Uh, they were tortured. Castro is a tyrant. I even got to know Castro's uh, daughter, his one daughter, uh, a so-called illegitimate daughter, Alina Fernandez. In fact, there's a funny story about this. She had fled to Miami. She couldn't take her brother anymore, her father anymore, and uh, worked against the regime. She has a radio show, Radio Mambi, down there. And we went on a tour together along with my director at the time of Judicial Watch, Sandy Cobus, to Europe. We were in five European capitals uh, trying to convince them to increase sanctions, to have greater freedom of the press. I testified in front of the Italian and French parliaments. I actually speak Italian and French. I did it in those languages. I gave a press conference in, in Madrid, Spain, calling for the overthrow of Castro. And, uh, you know, even she, Castro's daughter, wanted him to leave peacefully. I, I thought maybe if he left at any means it would be better, but she may have disagreed with me on that. But uh, this tells you something about these individuals, that even the daughter of Castro would have turned against him. And for the United States to get down on its knees, under President Obama as he got down on his knees to the Saudi king, as he got down on his knees to Hugo Chavez, as he gets down on his knees to nearly anyone who's a socialist or a communist, those days are over. So it's time for President Trump to really press because Cuba remains weak 
and we can uh, create much greater freedom in that country if we don't give in. Yeah, and isn't it a uh, an interesting thing? And this will be the last question I'll ask before we wrap it up for this episode. Um, isn't it so telling about the nature of these tyrants in power when they would rather because all these men are close to being billionaires, whether it's uh, Hafez, uh, Bashar al-Assad in Syria or the, the Jungs and the Kims in North Korea or the Mullahs of Iran or, in this case, the Castors of Cuba. They're incredibly wealthy. And what does it say about them uh, from a character standpoint, from a human evil standpoint, that they would rather live in their own countries holding on to the threads of power they have and enforcing it with an iron fist rather than living in exile in the laps of luxury somewhere around the world with their Swiss bank accounts? They're megalomaniacs. These are tyrants. Power is everything to them, and they're delusional. I mean, look at Saddam Hussein in Iraq. I mean, to the very end, he didn't know that he was going to have his head lopped off, in effect. And these people don't know that. They become power-hungry. And they have to keep their own people down. And frankly, you know, the only industry in Cuba today is catering to the Western Europeans in prostitution. Castro trades in prostitutes. Cuban women are good-looking, so it's, it's an easy sale to Europeans. And, and that's, that's all this country contributes. It doesn't contribute anything to the world other than to enslave its own people. It's a, it's a true tragedy. Well, thank you, Valeri, for fighting for freedom in America to preserve it, to keep our nation from ever becoming that. And how can the people out there support uh, Freedom Watch? Please go to freedomwatchusa.org, freedomwatchusa.org. Please contribute. We need the help. We're the mouse that roared, and we represent you, the American people, against tyrannical forces here in the United States and throughout the world. Well, thank you for joining us, everyone, and you'll see us and hear from us on our next episode. And subscribe to our uh, podcast, the Freedom Watch podcast with Larry Clayman. Go to SoundCloud.com, which is where you are now, and very soon it will be on iTunes as well. We look forward to having you subscribe and listening to the whole library of, of material we're creating here. Thank you so much. Watch the miles fly.